This is Speaking Up with Andrew Fledger, and I am happy to have Joe Lloyd Johnson on the show today. She is a childhood sexual abuse survivor and deconverted Christian who just published her first book, Silence in Eden. Her book walks readers through her childhood and realization of her abuse and journey to begin healing. Her path to self-love and acceptance was her journey out of religion. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am so glad you reached out and were able to get your story out there and help people find your book who really need it the most. It can help encourage them and help them in their recovery journey. But as we get into this interview, I'm curious, what was your childhood like regarding religion? Yeah, so growing up, religion was everything. (laughs) So my childhood was wrapped around religion. So when I was thinking about how to explain childhood for me, I my childhood was like split up into three different phases, if you want to call it. Before I was six, my I lived in a Christian commune. My grandfather actually started a commune, a high control group, <laughs> if you want to call it that, where we all lived in one. Most of the church lived on one pot of land where the church was and the parish was and people lived on like different trailers and different houses all on one land. But I was under six. So I don't have a lot of memories of that Um, through this process of trying to write and dig into my story more. I've asked people and I had one person say that it, it felt like Groundhog Day. Like every single day was exactly the same with the exact same people in the exact same place. So that was my before six. Then my grandpa passed away and the church fell apart. So it was like this big hole because our whole life was wrapped up in that like where we lived and all those people. But when it ended, we had to start over. My parents actually got married there and met there. So they both were teenagers when they got into that. And then now with four kids until I had to start a whole life over. And so I think of that as going into the desert, right? Because we all think of Bible stories because that was our life. <laughs> so for my parents, it was like coming out of and into the desert, searching for a promised land. So between six and 16, we went to basic churches, if you want to call them basic, like Calvary Chapel, First Baptist. But my parents, the church that we before was charismatic, spirit-filled, a lot of, we'd sing until the wee hours of the night. My grandma would say that she saw angels. There was a lot of spirit. And then we went to Calvary Chapel or First Baptist. First Baptist, like any movement of the spirit is considered demonic. So they believe in a demonic spirit. (laughs) They don't believe in movement of anything else. So that was that season. And then when I was 16, there was a church. We lived in a small town and there was a church about 30 minutes away that started blowing up with the youth and somebody invited us. And here we go into a non-denominational charismatic, just like the church before, right? And so when I 
visited that church, I was like, this is what my parents drone on and on about. This is the promised land. This is what church is supposed to be. So then that became my whole life. So my childhood was odd because it was like charismatic, spirit-filled. Then it, my parents were still that way, but the world around me was like disconnected from that type of Christianity. But in the home, it was still practice. Like my parents would still speak in tongues. My dad would still want to do Bible studies and have the same mindset of the church before. And then when I was 16, I went into the other church that was more similar to what my parents. And I think it was because it was ingrained in me. This is real Christianity. So when I found that, I was like, oh, I figured it out. This is what my parents are telling me like Christianity is supposed to be. And so it became my whole life. In high school, me and my now husband started a like campus club on campus. And we would do like prayer on Friday mornings. We'd get up at five in the morning and pray before school. And eventually we ended up doing two years of an internship at that church. Internship being where we pay them to work for them for free. Just a nice little way of getting free labor, offering a few, quote, Bible classes, usually taught by not properly trained educators. It's just a really smart way to get free labor. Yeah. Which I didn't even know, like, very recently we looked it up and it's actually, like, illegal. The way that they ran it wasn't even legal because it's considered, like, it's against, it goes against California's labor laws. That was interesting to be like, oh, hey, that wasn't just manipulation. That was actually not legal. So that, that's my childhood. And then my husband and I got married and went through. I don't know if you want to get on to all of the ups and downs of young adulthood or if you have questions about just childhood. Yeah, yeah thank you for saying that, because, yes, I would love to definitely dig more to your childhood and then yeah we can keep going forward so that was a great summary that you gave i have a lot of questions yes. <laughs> <Go for> it. <laughs> yeah so it was so fascinating to me in the beginning from up till you were six years old basically you had lived on that commune and you said you, you don't have any memories of it, but just you talking about like the isolation, being on a commune, isolated from society under this leader. And when the leader is gone, they can't function. That's a cult. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I know you said people use like words interchangeably. Some people say, oh, high control. Or because cult has such a strong connotation to it, but yes, that right. sounds like that's a, in my mind when you said that, I was like, oh, that's a little bit culty, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny because I, like I said, when I started this process of writing the book, I started asking questions about, okay, what was it like at the old church, right? Mm -hmm. And I won't say his name because he told me not to ever quote him on this. <laughs> Because there's a lot of people from the past who don't want to claim that word. But he said, just ask, just explain to anyone else who didn't live in it, who wasn't 
part of the indoctrination and the brainwashing. Ask it, explain what it was like to anyone outside of it and see what word they use. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Problem solved. Figure that out. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and I like like your metaphor or analogy or story about just your parents going to the desert. The th- thing about cults is that they give you the answers for everything. And being human, it's scary. It's hard. It's a lot of uncertainty. And we look for certainty. We look for structure. But to have that gone and to go out looking for that, I'm sure like they felt so lost and looking for something to replace that background. Because another thing is that cults, they really take your identity, like your identity is the cult. So when that's taken away, you just feel so lost and directionless. And it was, I think you had said that y'all had, I love how you said basic churches. <laughs> you right. did like basic churches. Basic. The normal, <laughs> yeah. cultural norm of mm-hmm. Christianity. Yes. So y- y'all are exploring different churches. And then it looks like your parents really got into the charismatic movement, which is so emotional. And you're like in these and all of these groups, you are heavily influenced by the group and really in any social group you are. But I feel like in these religious groups, there's so much more of that on a much higher level than other social groups. And with the charismatic movement, there's just so there's so much pressure to conform because from what I've heard when I've talked with people who grew up in the charismatic movement, like if you weren't able to speak in tongues or be like this is in air quotes overtaken by the Holy Spirit, you weren't saved, you weren't a real Christian, or you weren't blessed by God or something. So you were like the outcast. So there's that pressure to just conform. And to do these things. And there is such a thing as like social contagions. So that group behavior just being contagious and all those emotions so contagious. So I can see the attraction to that. Just wanting to get that emotional high of being a part of something. Feeling like you're special. You're chosen. You found the answer. And so what's interesting to me is though you've left religion completely. Yeah. And... Which, same here, (laughs) same. (laughs) But it's always interesting to me to see different people's journeys and paths. And to me, what I always say is that all paths are valid. If it leads you to a, yeah, if it leads you to a healthy lifestyle or well-being, that's what's right for you personally. So for you growing up in this, what were some big questions about it or doubts that really made you start to like deconstruct? And then what led up to the moment of finally leaving religion? Yeah, so that was a like long path. And it's interesting because you have these things that don't sit in your spirit right, but you don't acknowledge them or you don't 
like even know how to validate them. And it's not until you leave or until it starts to fall apart where you're like, oh, I've had that for a while or, oh, maybe I've never been okay with this. And so now looking back, it's easier to see those things that were never okay with me. But so when I started to pull away, it wasn't until I was like 30. (laughs) So there was a long time between married at 23 and starting to be like, hey, maybe this isn't what I've always thought it was. So I guess it would make sense to go through some of the things that happened in that time to explain how that came about. So my husband and I started dating and he was dating while he was on staff at the high control group. He actually had to ask permission to date me, which at first was told no, and that he should give the relationship to God and not talk to me for three months. And then when we did what they said, then we were given a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I can't. Hey, y'all, I, for those listening, I just rolling my eyes. Just, I'm just like, gosh. Ugh. Yeah. So the pastor's wife was known for doing these fun little tests where she would do something that was like not, I get asked you to do something not normal, not talk to your friend. Because my husband and I were good friends. We did ministry together before. And then he was like, hey, I think I like you as more than a friend. And I was like, so here's somebody who I had ran small groups with and done stuff on our high school campuses and a good friend. And we're like, okay, now that you might like each other, don't talk. We're like, wait, what? But anyways, being the compliant young wannabe leaders, we did what they asked. We're allowed to date, started dating, and then being 21 and 23 and deciding we wanted to marry each other, our bodies didn't want to wait. A week before our wedding, we did premarital counseling where my husband owned up to the fact that we had sex. End leadership career there. They fired him six days before our wedding. We went from having regular income to having no, I had a a job, but like we, half of our income was gone and we were kicked out of leadership and that led my husband to four and a half years of drinking and anger Mm. while I was trying really hard to be the submissive wife and pray him back into the church. Because I wasn't allowed to do anything without Mm. him because he's the male and he's the leader. So I can't go back to being a leader in the church. I have to only do what he is willing to do. So I was doing what I was trained to do, which was pray. And we ended up having two kids during that time. And I was practically parenting alone because he wasn't dealing with all his hurt. He was just angry. Anyways, my prayers worked or he got sick of me pulling him to church and came. We went back to church for a season. And it's interesting. In the book, I say like when we left that church, 
I wish that we had left all of the indoctrination, all of my, for me, it was striving, trying to be good enough, right? But the things that you are indoctrinated in, it's like they injected into your veins and you can't just remove it easily. So I wasn't ready yet. Like it wasn't removed yet. There was still a whole lot of religion and trying to make it work. So we went back to being leaders really fast. We went to a church that was, again, similar. And having a different leader that has the same problems for me was pretty eye-opening. I was like, maybe the problem isn't that one pastor. Maybe the problem is this system. So I think that was one of the first. I don't know if church is functioning the way it should function for me because it was like I tried this, we're trying a different church that everyone's telling me is healthier. Seems like I was saying it has all the same problems. Um, and what were these problems that you were seeing across the board? Yeah. So the control, right? The hierarchy of the God and charismatic. This is specific to like the latter rain discipleship movement. It, I don't know if you've heard of John Bevere. He has a book called Undercover which is this whole idea that you have to be under your leader and your pastor and your husband. And it's this hierarchy, right? There's a chain mm-hmm. of command. We are soldiers in God's army. <laughs> yeah. So the control was crazy. And the thing I see now is when you tell someone that they're God's direct line for their sheep or whatever, their congregation that puts so much pressure on a person to hear the right words and i don't think anyone's ever going to be able to handle that pressure so it's a breeding ground for in my opinion mental illness so you're putting so much pressure on the leader telling them they have to have the right word and then the people under them has have to submit and follow their word from god or it's not going to work so they don't just have pressure to have the right word they then have pressure to have the right people under them to do the right word. So if it if anything fails, it's all on them. So yeah, again, it's just the system of it breeds unhealth due to this idea that for one, God speaks to you and gives you knowledge of how you're supposed to have specific things like God told me, and this is for real, like something someone said, God told me that for campuses, we need to bring pizza and that the pizza is going to bring large amounts of people. Is God really giving you these very specific details of how he wants you to do stuff, but he can't like deal with plagues or like people in war, but he wants to tell you what pizza to order? Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. And like the people who pray for their parking spot at the grocery store and God answers their prayer that I always think of that because I grew up seeing that happen. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Or praying for your son's basketball team Ooh. to win. Yeah. That one's <laughs> definitely happened at that church. <laughs> yes. And Something I just want to dig a little bit into as you're talking about this system. 
really what I have learned as I've left that environment is that when you describe these situations and then when you find the terms, you're like, oh, yes. So these environments are very authoritarian. Yes. Really. And sadly, a lot of the families indoctrinated into these high control systems, they're authoritarian too, because it just spreads like a virus. Like again, like you're told, like this is how your family functions. And you talked about the hierarchy. And I know we've all seen that stupid umbrella graphics. Yes. <laughs> oh. Need it. Right. Yeah. And yeah, to what you're saying, it was that way in my home because uh, and this is what I'm getting now, like the high control of the church that I was a part of is a mirror image of the commune. I won't use the other C word, but the commune <laughs> from childhood. And so it having gone through a season where I was indoctrinated as an adult, where I can start to see the manipulation a little bit better. It does give me an understanding of where my parents were and what thinking was put in them and then therefore why they parented the way they parented. Because my dad, he even owned up recently that he thought that to prove he was a good father, he would have obedient children. So if he's a bad, if his kids are being bad, he's then somehow a bad father instead of the idea that kids are figuring out limits and have smaller developing brains and just don't know how to regulate yet. Yes. And I, yeah, I relate to really what you were saying about the family because in that kind of, when the family is structured with that like authoritarian style parenting, there's very rigid rules. The child doesn't have autonomy and you always have to obey the adult or the parent no matter what, no questioning. And in different systems that function like that, the group members' needs are never considered or taken seriously. They don't matter. You're just expected to comply. And if you complain, it's your fault. You're not trusting enough. You're not obeying enough. You're not good enough. Or, oh, okay, you wouldn't be suffering if you're really following our rules or our formula. So that's on you. So it's never the authority, the authority figures are never held accountable or, for, or take responsibility for anything. And I think that is one big reason to why there's so much toxicity and abuse in those environments because it's really it's inequality like people aren't equal in those environments people's needs aren't considered at all and as a result and even in that situation i think everyone suffers yeah. some more than others definitely or for different reasons but it's so dysfunctional and everyone's just quietly suffering in silence and that's silenced in Eden because I felt silenced. My husband jokes that I had to write the book to like air my grievances because I don't know how to speak them with words. So I had to write them all down. 
But yeah, to kind of what you were saying, when you don't have autonomy, you don't mm. have, and no one's acknowledging that you're, you have needs and are allowed to have needs and supposed to have needs. And you don't, when you don't, when you're not allowed to have needs, it's hard to see that you have worth or to validate feelings. So when a child is abused, so in my situation, I was sexually abused at mm. six years old. It's rare that a child goes, A, that I'm not supposed to be treated this way. And B, I need to, t I'm allowed to tell someone that something's happening. So I know there's so many stories, which is horrific and sad of people who have been abused inside churches. But there's a reason why they don't feel like they have a voice because the system itself tells those who are not in authority that they don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So then we are surprised when the person who matters, the leader who's actually abusive, is given us, is allowed to continue because in that hierarchy, they're the ones with all the power, right? So how is the little guy going to be able to take power? You know what I mean? Like it's it's just it's just set up so flawed in a way that it does breed abuse and it does make it so rampant. Yes. And the thing that just pisses me off when anyone criticizes their hierarchy because they claim that God set it up this way, that's what God wanted. And then when all this abuse comes out and people criticize the way things are set up, people are like, oh, like, this is man. It's not God. 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 And then there's that verse of God puts down one band and brings up another. And then you're like, okay. Ew. But then if you're saying it in situations where it's a leader, what the hell was God doing if God's the one who puts him in leadership, right? Yeah. And I think is also an example of like, people putting dogma over other people like the dogma matters more the rules matter more than anyone else or anything that anyone goes through in those environments yeah it's their they don't want to let go of the structure structure mm. is what they're comfortable with and it's what puts the white man in leadership which he mm -hmm. wants to be and gives him power and it's hard to give up power yes and like i've also talked with other survivors of how they've noticed that narcissists are so attracted to these environments like think about it like the grandiosity of the leader they're already told god has a special plan for you god planned this before you were born you're gonna do great things you're special and mm -hmm. then you have this unlimited power or everyone just fawns over you oh. and you're seeing almost really like in this kind of like holy kind of light oh they're chosen by god and oh my gosh oof like i better be good and i think even though it's not necessarily doctrinally aligned with all christian denominations but i think some people think that oh if i get close to him like i'm really getting closer to god Oh, absolutely. Because I remember having that thought, like seeing women in the church who I looked up to 
who I thought were like similar to me, but like better <laughs> because they, whatever, were being used in the church. So I thought that meant they were being used by God and being like, I need to be closer to them. I need to let them be my Paul to me being Timothy or whatever. And I think Christianity does that a lot. They talk about having a mentor and they have these really odd, unhealthy relationships where it's not about both people being able to communicate and give and take, but it's like this, oh, I'm the leader for you and I'm going to give to you, but then I'm going to find a leader for me and they're going to give to me. And so all it's a bunch of one-sided relationships, which yeah. I don't think is a healthy way of learning how to relate to people. But I did want to say something with your quote to the idea of narcissism, because I've I just read Power. I don't rem- I didn't write her name down, but I think it's Recovering from Narcissistic Abuse is the subtitle. Mm-hmm. And I'm now questioning if the power structure and dynamic in church is actually creating narcissists. Because I think that there's this mind-numbing feeding into ego that is causing them to not no longer be connected to other people's feelings. And so it makes me wonder, are narcissists drawn to church or are churches creating narcissists? Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> hypothesis. The chicken or the egg, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, like it could be both, honestly. But I see what you're saying, though, because it is a system that is rooted in toxicity and, and I guess you would say unnatural relations because you don't have that same connection meeting those needs. So when my husband and I were having sex and we're not supposed to be, because purity culture, like it was the worst sin we could have ever been doing. But we were in leadership and there were times where he would be leading a prayer. And so we would be sitting in a whole bunch of shame and then trying to beg God to like give us, give him something to share for prayer on Saturday night or whatever. And it would create this weird cycle of shame and then trying to earn repentance and then showing the like healing that you believe you came to or whatever but it was just this really weird cycle of striving and trying to earn your keep and trying to purify yourself i only know the christian words for it because that's Mm. where my head was at the time yeah. But just the way that that, it just messes with your head. Yeah, I know what you're saying because I've seen different creators talk about how this relationship with Jesus can become a pattern of a narcissistic abusive relationship. Because, for example, you're really love-bombed and told, oh my gosh, God loves you. He died for you. He loves you more than anything else in the world. So that's like the idealization stage. And you just get so overwhelmed with all these emotional feelings. And then it's the devaluation stage of, oh, you're a sinner. You're disgusting. 
but God loves you. God loves you. <laughs> and so it's like this confusing, contradictory messaging of, oh, God loves you so much. And then this tearing down. And so it's interesting because I remember being told, oh, Christ frees you, but you were never really free because you still had all these rules to follow and you still had to constantly pray, even though you te- people believe different things. But I was taught that once you say this stupid prayer, then you're saved. <laughs> so me and my husband got into a fight about once saved, always saved, because <laughs> I didn't, I believed you could lose your salvation. And he did not. Now, this is obviously before when we believed there was a salvation to be had. But I remember we were, I don't know, 10 years into maybe less, probably like seven years into marriage. And uh, and he was like, Joanna, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, like you don't really believe in the security of love. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably why like I'm so insecure and always afraid like that I'm not lovable. And he believed, yeah, that once you're a, quote, child of God, then God would never let you go. Yeah. So obviously, like, those two change your dynamic of your view of what love is and what a relationship with God then would look like. Yeah, most definitely. And it's interesting because I was taught the security of salvation. But I was told, you still need to ask for forgiveness and constantly be sorry for your sin and feel shame about it because if you don't and if you don't confess then yes you're still going to heaven but you can't have a relationship with god until you confess because that sin disconnects you so you have to constantly just be confessing because you're human and they have an impossible standard to follow <laughs> anyways and they rub that in your face too <laughs> they tell you like i remember someone telling me they're like yeah they're like without they're like do you know the other way to get saved like you have to never break a rule in the bible ever and that's the other way to get saved and like guess what they're like you can't do that and someone said that you can't do that so you this is really the only other way and blah 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 and all this shit i'm like okay or i could just not give a fuck and leave all this (laughs) but i could just be like bye (laughs) yeah so i had I have a story in the book. I was, quote, saved. I say I said the sinner's prayer at five. And and I was told that you say this prayer, you ask Jesus into your heart, but and then he takes your sin away. But then, yeah, your sin separates you. So I don't know if they said he would leave my heart in my childhood brain. Like that was what I thought. If I did anything wrong and Jesus is going to flee my heart because it's now bad. And after praying the sitter's prayer, like every single night, I would say the prayer again and be like, come back into my heart. I'm sorry I got mad at my sister. Come back. And so it was for me always that like fear of, I guess, abandonment, really. Really healthy at five, right? Ooh, wow. Yeah, all these toxic things we're just indoctrinated with at such a young age just completely stifles healthy development period especially like psychologically and emotionally like development in children and in people in general but i'm really curious about the writing of your book tell me how that process came about so i started writing my grandma passed away in 2019 
And shortly after she passed away, we found out that my dad had a half-brother, which was conceived by another woman while they were married. And I was, what the heck, Grandma? Why didn't you tell us all of this huge secret? What other secrets are you hiding? And for me, it was like, I don't want to have secrets that my kids don't know. So I just was like, I'm going to start writing my painful past to one day share with my daughters. So I never, I didn't expect to publish it at first. But as I started writing and I was like in the process of deconstructing, I was like, it it was, it became therapy for me. It became, okay, I, I need, I'm untangling the idea of hell. I'm going to write about it. Or I'm remembering the first time I spanked my daughter and how I felt like shit for being for spanking, yet I thought I was supposed to spank. And that then made me think of times being spanked myself. And so it just was, it became th- my therapy. And honestly, I don't know if I could have looked back to the specific sexual abuse without having that outlet to process writing. Like writing was my safe place to sit in really scary emotions. And at one point I had my sister, who was an avid reader, uh, an English teacher for forever, read one of my chapters and she's like, hey, Joe, this is good. You should actually think about putting it out there. And so I shared it with a couple of people and got really good feedback. And actually had one, the person who ended up writing my forward, she was like, you don't understand. You, this book changed my life because shortly after reading, she had her own flashbacks come back, which is interesting. Like I've let go of the idea of a divine, a, part, a, a deity in control, but there's been a lot of things while writing this book where it's like a path feels like it's laid out for me. Like I just mm-hmm. felt like I'm supposed to give this book to this one person from my past and it ends up that she was also abused as a child okay that's I don't know how to explain that one yeah Uh, but when that happened it was like okay there's others out here and this story could do more healing for them not everybody's gonna want to sit in their story and write their story but maybe they'll sit in their story while I go through my story to them Mm, yeah so that's my hope with the book is that people who in my husband said, you don't have to have had a sexual abuse to get it because it just talks about traumatic memories and how they can like flood into your brain. And it talks about things that you thought were normal in childhood that then when you're a parent or an adult and you're like, I don't want to play that out to my kids. I don't want to cause the harm that I now see was caused in me by parenting the way that my parents parented. Yep, that's the book. <laughs> yeah, and just for listeners, could you say the title of the book in brief description of it? Yes. Yeah, so the title is Silenced in Eden. The idea is that my grandparents built their perfect little Eden on Earth. And there, in that perfect idea of Eden, was where I was abused and silenced. And the book goes through some ideas of like childhood. I didn't remember that I was abused until I was 16. It talks about my first flashbacks 
my marriage, the fun reality of being a woman in a man's world and man's religion. And then, yeah, having my daughter was really the change, the changing point where I was like, I don't want this to be the world that she grows. I don't want my daughter to never have a voice. I don't want mm. my daughter to be a second class citizen. And maybe I was okay with being in the background, but I am not okay with putting her in the background. And the book ends very, I don't preach. I just share my story. I don't tell readers what to believe. I know a lot of Christian readers who are still Christians who resonate with the book. I know people who are not Christians at all now and mm -hmm. resonate with the book. But yeah, it's just walking through someone's painful parts of their life and hopefully not seeing too much of your own pain in it, but most likely you will. Yeah. So it's like people seeing part of their story in yours. Yes. In the intro, I say, I learned that you only can defeat the monster by looking it in the eyes and that by me walking you through my story, hopefully I am able to walk through yours. So yeah, that's very much the idea is for them to hear parts of their story through my story and come to whatever realizations they need to come to for themselves. And whatever resonates with them is what matters. And other parts might resonate with someone else. Mm -hmm. They might land in different parts of their journey, but I just want to walk a little leg with them. Yes, thank you for sharing that. I just got like chills throughout my body, especially when you talked about facing your monster, looking it in the eyes and dealing with that. And it's hard. It's not easy. And I'm so glad that you overcame so much as so much resilience and was able to question and to write this book and put it out there to make a difference in other people's lives. And I'm glad to hear that you're able to see the evidence of that and hear back from other people. I just, I think it's just so inspiring and so powerful. Yeah, the the woman who did the forward literally was my like every time I get discouraged, which happens a lot when you're facing <clears throat> stuff like this and mm. facing the backlash of airing dirty little secrets that not people don't want you to air. I would read that forward and a couple emails from her all the time because it was like, OK, I've helped one. There's more. I've helped one person and I know I, I will help more. And so it's a very Christian idea, right, that we're supposed to go through something painful for someone else's betterment. I think that's the one part of Christianity that I like want to hold to is that I'm willing to be honest and open with some of my pain so I can sit in your pain. Yes, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, that is a powerful message. But as we get towards the end of this interview, is there anything else you would like to dig into? I know part of me is uh, thinking of part two because <laughs> I feel like there's so much more we could dig. There is a lot. I In the book, I talk about disassociating mm -hmm. and it's interesting. I had 
really great experiences of like emotional highs from like you were talking about a little bit about like the corporate experience, right? You're in a room and they're singing and it's this great emotional high that you get. And but what you don't, what I didn't know or didn't realize is like that it in those moments you can like disconnect from your brain and that it's actually like a form of disassociating. And that when the more that a young person disassociates, the more that they have a chance of developing complex PTSD, which I most likely have. And so obviously I I disassociated during traumatic events when I was abused, but then also I would disassociate like in like a, what I thought was a positive way in Mm -hmm. in religious situations. And actually, that's where I had my first flashback was I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? I spoke in tongues, glossolalia, which is the actual term instead of the religious term, and that they've done brain scans of people who are speaking in tongues. And it actually like shuts down parts of your brain and opens up parts of your brain, which is what happens When you do hypnosis or EMDR therapy. Yes. So because I was in this state, this trance-like state, I had my first flashback because it like deadened part of my brain and opened up a memory. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't in a therapeutic place. (laughs) So it just ended up giving me like I had full-blown PTSD for Mm. months because I unlocked memories with nowhere to go to deal with those memories and sadly that wasn't dealt with until much more recently because I had yet another spiritual experience where somebody prayed over me and it like calmed whatever was going on in my brain enough that the flashback stopped but I never dealt with the uncovered memory. So it was almost like another level of disassociating. Oh, it was like, here's this memory and it haunts me. And then they're like, okay, now put that memory away. And then I like just keep going on with now this ghost of mm-hmm. the past in the background still haunting me. And all that to just say the ignorance of mental health <laughs> inside of the church is astonishing and i didn't even that wasn't a therapy wasn't a resource for me because it was something i should pray away something that a Mm. spirit like i was told that god can heal me and so i believe that it's much easier to believe that god can magically heal you than being like oh you have trauma that's going to take years and years of therapy to work through if you could actually pick between those two (laughs) all day I'll say a little prayer and let's have God just heal it and make it go away. But that's not how trauma works. Those things are, I use the analogy of a brick wall. Like you have to take that down one brick at a time. Yes. That's not a quick job. Yes, that is a perfect analogy for that. And it can, like you said, if you could choose between two things, like it would be so nice if right? you could say a quick prayer 
and everything's fine and great. And the sad thing is a lot of people, they're told, oh, just pray, do this and be fine. And it just causes them, like you said, to disassociate or just to repress things and not deal with it. And you put on this mask because you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, it's definitely working. This this formula they're giving me is working. And if you don't, then you're blamed. Wow. And like, it's so interesting to me. The trance-like states we get into in these environments and the parts of our mind that opens up. And it was interesting that you talked about hypnotherapy because hypnotherapy is something that I recently have started doing with a therapist. It's been really surprising to me how effective it is when it's in conjunction with the mental health professional. <laughs> done correctly. Yeah, yeah correctly. I'm, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm supposed to start my EMDR therapy. I'm looking for a therapist right now. Actually, I partnered with Louder Than Silence, which d- helps raise money for therapy for sexual um, victims, mm-hmm. which is amazing. A dollar for every book goes to them to supporting them to hopefully pay them back for my therapy but yeah it is crazy how like they're doing these things to a group of people with no awareness of what they could be unlocking and then yeah when with some people if it gets really bad then they'll say they have a demon right and then they'll pray them out I've seen that where it's, no, there's probably severe trauma and you're probably only fucking them up more. And I know for my story, for me, yeah, it was this, okay, I unlocked this and now I need to bury it again because God healed you because someone said a prayer and gave you a specific rhema word and you felt good in that moment. So now you have to believe that is it, like you're healed. And having that like pressure to like, okay, now I have to be healed. Like this can't keep affecting me. Like I can't still be hurt by this extremely painful thing that happened to me as a child because God healed me. Yes. And it was fascinating to me how you were saying people perceiving these things as demons because as I'm continuing on my deconstruction journey, psycho- like learning psychology isn't a big part of that. And uh, I'm a psychology student and I'm excited because I'm about to graduate with my bachelor's. Thank you. <laughs> but as I've done my own research, realizing that throughout history, religion has been used to explain things we can't explain. So as science progressed, we learned, for mm-hmm. example, like for the longest time, people didn't know about germs. It was plagues, right? Yes. <laughs> so they thought it was something demonic. And the thing is, people still think that it's either demonic or that it's something God does. But even though we have science to show what's really going on, but the thing with the mind, mm, like you said, like mental health is terrible in the church. <laughs> They ignore all the research that has been done. And again, it's using religion to attribute things that we don't understand ourselves and we're scared of. I can understand how people could perceive that because they're, as people, majority of what goes on in the human mind is unconscious. 
that's what most people don't most people don't realize that we like to think we know we're um, in control yes illusion of control yes but a lot of what is going on is unconscious and there are parts that kind of come out of the unconscious and they can start to reach over into our consciousness or they jump into it and, and it could be shocking to us because we see it as perceiving it as some oh like this is some kind of spirit or demon because i don't know it just came out of nowhere because it wasn't something that was i was aware of and it came out of nowhere so it had to be right. some kind of so it's just interesting to see oh, okay like and, you know and just for context like as i've been learning psychology i realized like we still really don't know shit (laughs) about there's so much there's so much more of course it has progressed a lot in psychology we keep learning it more and more neuroscience is something a baby science that is really having us learn more but what we really know right now is so little and it's great though because that's the great thing about science is it's going to continue progressing we're going to continue to learn more and more but and we, we've developed a lot of tools to help people deal with mental health and different theories to lead a better life. But they that kind of environment, they don't want to do that. They don't want to integrate that or dig deeper. They want their that certainty, the rules to follow, and all of that. Um, Again, it's the choice. Like the mm-hmm. other one's so much easier. It's so much easier yes. to just be like, no, you mm-hmm. just pray. Yeah. And God heals you. And the frustrating thing is, though, is when that doesn't work. You need to work the system better. You need something's <laughs> wrong with you. Like you're saying something's <laughs> wrong with you. You didn't have enough faith oh, or yeah. you started to doubt or you have sin in your life. And it's just further. It's victim yeah. blaming it a person mm-hmm. who has the who's the victim of mental illness or the vi- victim of trauma or the person mm-hmm. who's being belittled or gaslit is the problem yes and so as you went along in your healing journey for you when did you feel like your healing journey really started so my husband and I when I was pregnant with my first boy in 2018 there was something about having a boy and realizing how unfair the world is to girls because I had I have three girls before I had a boy and I'm a very loud rambunctious girl I like to wear jeans more than dresses I never wear high heels and I remember a pastor telling me like how to get a man and what to be the pretty princess and being like no that's not gonna be that I'm sorry so I never I always felt like I didn't fit the mold of a female in the church. And so there was something about bringing a boy into the world where I was like, wait, this isn't fair. He gets to be whoever the hell he wants to be. Granted, now I'm like, only if he's straight, he gets to be who he wants to be. But the difference of how the, the world receives a female versus a male, that was the beginning for me of deconstructing. So that was my first thing and really healing from looking the monster of my abuse in the eye started 
much more recently. It was really writing the book. So within the last three years of actually, there was a moment where I wrote in my journal that I was the brick wall. Like I realized that how disconnected I was with my own self. So that was a little bit more. I think I was pregnant with my son. So anyways, it's been slow. (laughs) It's hard to walk away from a faith that is all that that's the way you defined yourself. I was again at 23, I was the one praying my husband back to church because I wanted to be a pastor's wife and he has to be a pastor for me to be a pastor's wife. So it's been about five years. It's been slow, but again, like when, when you start to walk away, you start to see, oh, that never worked in my mind at 16 when my friend committed suicide and he was going to go to hell. I wasn't Mm. okay with that. Or when I had a friend who I was gay and they were shamed for it. I wasn't okay with that. And when my, I had a girlfriend who like offered me a threesome and I laughed it off and I wasn't disgusted at all. I was like, thanks for the compliment. (laughs) Just the realization of things that, like things in my spirit that were, yeah, that I've always had starting to be like acknowledged, I guess. So yeah, my, my journey out I'm my husband and I are are talking about writing a second book together and we've Mm -hmm. talked about the title destined to leave because I feel like it was destiny. Like we were, I was, I feel like now looking back and like, I'm, I was always supposed to leave. I was always going Mm -hmm. to leave. This never fit me. I don't know if I really answered your question, but (laughs) no, it's all good. And I'm just curious that even though it's interesting when you leave religion, people always assume that you've, gotten rid of the idea of spirituality or something higher than you which is it's not always true for everyone but i'm curious for you do you believe in some kind of higher power or higher force yeah for me i am very intuitive and i'm a really deep person i love connecting with people in deep levels i've had such experiences within christianity where i've The Christian word is like a word of knowledge. Like I've prayed for somebody and been like, oh, this just happened to you or known that other women that I was having relationships with had been also abused. And now I I think that there's this knowing inside of us that a victim knows another victim. Yeah, I don't mm -hmm. know. Science has yet to explain it. (laughs) But as far as my spirituality, I like the concept of integrating the spirit within Mm. so my whole life i had to be the perfect person and i divided myself from my trauma yeah and then i divided myself from my weaknesses and i feel like i was just divided all up and so for me the concept of god being separate from me is another division though i think that believing that god spirituality is a life force within me and within each individual that we all kind of share Mm, to me that's like integrating spirit yeah so i'm not i'm no longer okay with dividing myself from that part of myself yes that is so powerful and like even with people who've had psychedelic experiences they've described 
on a much like higher level of experiencing that, like this interconnectedness that we all have, this oneness mm-hmm. that we're not separated from this higher force or something greater. And I love that, like, you've been able to still have that concept of it. And I think, and I love how you talk about the integration of different parts of yourself, because I don't know if you've done internal family systems therapy. Oof. I feel like that's something that you would love because it's a therapeutic technique that acknowledges these different parts in our personality that have different roles and trying to integrate them together, make them work together and heal them. Basically. That sounds sounds like something I need. (laughs) Yeah. So like it's when you start talking about it, I'm like, has she done internal family systems? But the thing is, again, it's intuitive. We have this intuitive feeling. And that's how internal family systems started when patients started describing different parts of themselves. I can't remember the person who found it. I think it was like Richard Short. I don't know. Anyways, I can't remember the person's name. But they started listening to their patients. They're like, they're talking about like different personalities or subpersonalities inside of themselves that are interacting. And I don't know if they realize it and understanding the complexity of the mind and the human personality. And I've heard a lot of great success stories about internal family systems of people integrating these different parts of themselves. Like, for example, one of the roles is the exiled part of ourselves, which is in a sense could be like the inner child, the part of ourselves that has been shamed and blamed and hidden away, which I related to so much when I read that. I'm like, oh, yeah, religion really did that (laughs) to Mm -hmm. us. And so learning... And understanding how these different parts act and how it emotionally shows up in your life and in your behavior and how to integrate that to live a healthier life and also heal. And it's just, it's incredible all the different therapy modalities there are because I'm making a list and I'm like, which one do I want to try next? Which one? It's great that we have so many now mm-hmm. because there yeah. are ones that won't work for some people and ones yeah. that will. And we all have our own way of understanding our brain our story and so it's great that we have all of these options and ways to find healing yes and what advice do you have for people who are struggling or are discouraged on their own healing journey i think you need to have to remind yourself why you're doing it right for me i had to have the people I was going to end up helping. That's for me. That was something that worked for me. But just the understanding of like why I'm going through this painfulness that I'm going through, because it's hard to do heavy lifting without some sort of view of the end result. And honestly, it's so much better on this side. Go through the fire because on this side, like you are okay with yourself. I wasn't okay with who I was. I didn't know who I was inside of trauma and going through like opening up very much integrating my traumatized child and starting to like own parts of myself that were never allowed because of the system that I was a part of. Like now I feel whole and I'm like excited to keep figuring out who I am. And I had a moment recently where I was like being questioned, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? 
and someone trying to like quiet me. And I was like, I'm sorry, but I'm to the point where that shit ain't gonna fly. (laughs) I am too happy and I like myself too much to go back into a box. And I'm finally not willing to sacrifice my freedom and my desires and my joy for other people. And as a before, like I would die for anyone. Like I would do anything. I would I was okay with being the martyr for everybody else. Yeah. But you only get one life. So if you want a chance of living, you need to heal enough to enjoy it. Yes. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that and being vulnerable and just sharing your own journey to help other people and the things that you've learned along the way. And is there anything else you would like to say before we end this interview? Yeah. The only other thing I would say is that you love is what affects like being honest and vulnerable and loving is what changes people and what touches people and what affects lives. And in Christianity, we change, they change the words around, right? They talk about unconditional love and then they list the conditions. (laughs) And on the other side of Christianity, like we don't want to do the same thing. We don't want to tell people like, we love you, but you need to be open-minded or we love you, but you need to let's just love people. And be willing to like disagree with them and still love them and be open to other people's opinions. I've made it a point. I try to read like a book a month and I made it a point. So I'm reading one or two books that I know I'm going to disagree with every year because I don't want to be in my own now bubble we were in the christian bubble so i'm going to be in the deconstruction bubble no Mm. i'm going to stay open and i'm not going to be closed-minded i'm not going to think i have it right now i'm gonna keep growing and keep being willing to hear other people's sides so i would just encourage people to do the same thing like the we don't want to to harden our thoughts let's keep adapting and growing and it's a journey It's not a destination. Ooh. Yes, I agree 100%. Because I think what can happen is we take those elements. And I think it was really what you're describing. You're telling people, don't take that same approach to another kind of system or worldview. Don't do that. Keep that open mind and truly love people. And, oh my gosh, I forgot what I was going to say. It just totally slipped through my brain. I was leading up to something and it just, it's gone. It It ran away from you. It ran away. But, oh, I know what I was going to say. How we can, I love how you say it's a journey, not a destination. Because I think, and I've seen myself do this at times, is see healing as my, like, another form of salvation Mm -hmm. or sanctification. Oh, I have to reach this goal. I have to be this. I have to win the way, win the race or whatever they say. I don't know. But learning that, you know what? I can, I don't have to worry or don't have to be anything for anyone but myself and do that healing for myself. I don't have to be dependent on other people for their approval or for them to validate me in my own journey. 
just learning, okay, like I'm, I'm doing this because I want to heal. And also so I can love people more because I think as you heal, you're going to be able to love people more and care about the world more because there's so many people that are, they have no idea they have trauma or that they've been harmed and they have a lot of like inner wounds and they're hurting a lot of people and mm-hmm. it's not justified, but sadly, like we see that a lot. So if everyone could just be like, you know what? I want to live a happier, healthier life. I want to have the ability to love and care about people and I want to heal. I think the world would be a much better place. Definitely agree. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the yes. show. I've enjoyed this so much and like hearing your story and just your courage and bravery and just putting your story out there with your book. That's just so incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. I'm glad to be on here with you. I listened to your story. I know mm. you and have walked through same kind of stuff that I have as far as mm. just being not enough, right? Yeah. And desperate for love and yes. and the reality of I love the story you share about the couple who drove you to church when you were at Bible college. Uh, because to me like that was your first like unconditional love, right? Yeah. And it's sad that you were 20 something and not a baby. Yeah. But finally someone did it, right? Yeah. And so let's be that someone, right? Mm. If it's a simple drive, if it's a dinner, right? Bring them over to dinner after whatever it is, yeah. like just showing someone like we love you. It's okay that you're a little fucked up or it's okay that you're hurt or we love you. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Cause yeah, it's just, for me, it's so hard. Someone showing that they care without strings attached. You're almost uncomfortable with our past. It's uncomfortable when people love you that way, but that's how it should be. Yes, yes. And I I still have a lot to work through in that. But yeah, oof, I know. And, I, and that's the incredible thing, too, is that they showed unconditional love and they didn't believe any of what my group told me right. that people had to believe to be good people. So it's, it's just, mind blowing. Right? It is when mind you blowing. Have, when you have this idea of what a good, loving person, I remember liking some guy who's his parents were not Christian and they were happily married. And, li- and my little 15 year old brain was like, that's impossible. Only marriage only works with God because that's what I had been told. So I, it literally was just this mind blowing. Wait, your parents are happily married and in love after 30 years, but they're not Christians. That's not. It's just funny how we people showing us what real love looks like. People showing people who are in it what real love yeah. looks like will change them. Mm-hmm. A bunch of words are not going to change their minds because they're indoctrinated to believe something else. But when you show someone love who has spent their whole life with strings, if that will change them. Yes, most definitely. Wow. But thank you again. So for people listening, thank you so much. And please go buy her book and please share it on social media. And it is linked in the show notes. But for everyone listening, this was Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger.